Out and turn with me to Second First Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five. And as you're turning there, I'm going to say another prayer for us, and then we will move on. First Peter chapter five. Father, I come before you right now, and I want to confess my inadequacies to deal with a topic such as humility. Father, you know me better than anyone, and you know how far short I fall from this incredible, distinct virtue that was so evident in your son Jesus, Lord. And I hesitate to even try to communicate it, Father, because I'm inadequate to do so. But Father, I come before you and I want to confess that my faith is in your Son, Jesus, who qualifies me to be able to do so because your Son has clothed me in his righteousness and he enables me to stand before you and before others to teach your word. And, and I can handle a topic that I fall short of, Lord, because you are gracious and merciful and because of everything that your Son, Jesus, did for me and many others in this room, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us great grace in this moment, that you would open up our eyes to see the beauty of humility. And, Father, that we would see it through the lens of the gospel, that we would see it through the lens of your Son, that we would be gripped and find it desirable, Lord, that we would find how we may, as your people, access humility in our own lives. Father, that we may be a humble community of Christ's followers. Lord, I ask for your blessing. I pray for your spirit and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in the seventh grade, I had a basketball coach who I believed was clinically insane. Um, I believed he was crazy because of the intensity with which he coached us as seventh graders. I mean, he would literally run us every day till we could not walk. We would run short sprints, long sprints, upstairs, downstairs, inside, outside, you name it, we ran it. And every day after practice, me and my group of buddies would gather into a little huddle at at half court and we had a hard time standing. Our legs felt like noodles. It was just a miserable moment, but it never failed. Every day after practice, when we got to that point where we felt like we could take no, no other step, my coach would then look at us and he would say two words that to this day I cannot stand. He would look at us and he would holler out with a loud voice, attitude check. He would say attitude check and our heads would fall to the ground. We'd start cursing under our breath, doing what seventh graders do. Because we knew that that meant we'd have to make our way to the baseline. And once we got to the baseline, Coach Hicks was expecting us to take our hands and put them straight up into the air just like this. And at his whistle, we were to take off running up and down the court with our hands held high. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to run with your hands held high. It's not a very easy thing to do. It's not even easy to sit with your hands held high. But but this is what he expected us to do. And so we would run until he said stop. Some days we would run longer than others. Uh, Some days we'd run for five minutes. Other days we'd run for about 12 to 15 minutes. We just had to go until he said stop. But the whole time we were running, at random times, he would holler out, attitude check. And every time he would say that, me and my buddies would have to respond with, It's all good, coach. And we were all liars because it was never good, but we said it anyways. Just kept going every day. Attitude check became a defining moment for that basketball team. 
It was a defining moment because Coach Hicks insisted upon crafting within us, as painful as it was, a particular attitude that he wanted operating in our lives when we took the court. Well, tonight, I want us to take some time and conduct our own attitude check. That we would submit to the painful process of examining the degree to which humility may be present or not present in our lives. God is determined to craft within his people a particular attitude that he wants operating in our lives when we take the court, when we wake up in the morning, when we go to sleep at night, when we're sitting in classes, when we're working in business, whatever the case we're doing, God is determined to craft within us an attitude of humility. Paul says so in Philippians chapter 2, and he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is determined to shape within us the attitude of Christ, which is an attitude of humility. And Peter actually takes up the theme of humility and he deals with it in his own letter in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to pick up reading in verse, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Peter. Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll pick up reading in verse 5. Because at this point in time in this letter, Peter turns his attention and he addresses the younger crowd in the churches that he's writing to. And these were people who were younger, not just um, literally by age, but they were also younger in the faith. These were um, believers who weren't as mature as perhaps those serving as elders and pastors and leaders in the church. So he turns his attention to the younger crowd and he addresses the all-important topic of humility because Peter understands that God wants his people to walk and to live and to embrace a humble posture in this life. Now, I realize that the generation of believers who are represented in this room, you guys and girls can, be, can and are marked by various traits, various characteristics. This generation can be described as socially sensitive, globally connected, multicultural. But above all of those descriptions, God wants the Christian generation represented in this room, the chief hallmark that he wants flagging our lives is the hallmark of humility. And so Peter turns his attention to the younger crowd in verse 5. And he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, the, the pastors, the leaders in the local churches. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, 
seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. My biggest enemy in the seventh grade was a guy named Andy. He played for the West Monroe Rebels, a school about 30 minutes from where I went to high school in North Louisiana. And this guy was a genetic freak. In the seventh grade, he stood six feet, 10 inches tall, head and shoulders above everybody else on the court. And he had the name Andy. So I took it personally whenever we took the court to play this guy. And, and so I was determined every time we played him, I was going to take the ball right at him. And so I took the ball each time I played point guards. I was in control. I could do this if I wanted to. I would take the ball and I would take my five foot, 90 pound frame and I would go straight down the lane to the six foot, 10 inch guy, Sasquatch looking guy. And and I would get there and I would float the ball up thinking I could score on him. And every time I would float the ball up and it would leave my hand, Andy was there to swat it into my, into the stands. Majority of the time landing next to my mom and dad. I mean, he was just swatting my shots. But in pride, I was determined I could score on this guy. So I continued. Every time I brought the ball down the court, I'd put my head down, said, I'm going at it, I'm going to score on him. And I just kept taking it down the lane time and time and time again and time and time and time again. Andy just kept sending my shot in the opposite direction. It got so bad that one of my teammates actually said, man, Andy's killing us. And at first I thought, yeah, Andy is killing us. He's, he's destroying my shots. I can't score on this guy. But I found out later that my teammate wasn't talking about Sasquatch. He was actually talking about me. My pride was literally killing us. My teammates just sort of became irrelevant. They were parsley on the plate while I was the main course, taking the ball, wanting to do everything. And, and he was sending the ball every time. My biggest enemy in the seventh grade was a guy named Andy, but it wasn't that Andy. It was this Andy. Who's your biggest enemy? An ex-boyfriend? An ex-girlfriend? The new person in your social circle trying to work their way into your community? A Democrat? Republican? Al-Qaeda? Who's your biggest enemy? C.J. Mahaney reminds us that pride is our greatest enemy. And while pride is our greatest enemy, humility then on the flip side becomes our greatest friend. But realize that humility is a very shy friend. Because the moment you and I believe we are becoming humble people and we start looking directly at humility, that's when humility shrinks back and hides from us and we find ourselves sitting next to our biggest enemy. I was listening to a radio interview of a band that some guys I went to college with, some guys I was pretty good friends with, and the drummer of this band actually said several years ago, he's cool with me sharing this because we're, we're buddies and we've talked about it since then, but on this interview, the radio interviewer actually asked him, okay, what sets your band apart from all the other bands? What makes you distinct? What makes you different? And the drummer actually said, well, we're, a really, we're a really humble band. And the moment he said that, humility went into hiding. And he found himself sitting next to his greatest enemy. Humility is a very shy friend. So as we talk about her tonight, we're talking about 
Someone who needs to be nurtured in our lives, but we nurture it within our lives, not by looking at humility directly, but by looking at something greater than humility. And we'll get to that in a moment. So I just want to look at this passage. We're going to walk through it. I'm going to give you some reasons as to why humility is our greatest friend. And we see right off the bat there in the first verse, verse 5, perhaps... Most importantly, the reason why humility is our greatest friend is because humility honors God as God. That's where humility begins. That's his starting point. Humility honors God as God. Nestled there in verse 5 is that little phrase, that little powerful phrase, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This was a very popular verse in the early church. Peter uses it here. James uses it in his letter. It's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, I believe. It was very popular. It circulated the local churches often. This idea, this truth that God opposes the proud. That's a scary thought. This word oppose has a, has a threat kind of tied to it. It's, a, it's an intimidating word. It's actually a militant word. And it's saying that God opposes the proud. He is against the proud. Like like a soldier going to war, God opposes the proud. That's a sobering statement. But we've got to ask, why is that? Why is God so opposed to the proud? Why does he wage war against pride? Well, I'm going to give you this this answer. I believe the reason why God opposes the proud is because the proud are the kinds of people who oppose God. The word pride here literally means to show above. In pride, people try to show themselves above God, trying to take his place as God in our lives and in this world. And so when we or engage in prideful attitudes and affections and activities. We are literally trying to take God's place. And Peter knows a little bit about what this is like. Because Peter was a guy, if you ever just kind of walk through the Gospels, looking at the scenes that involve Peter, you're going to find a man who struggled with pride. It hindered his obedience on more than one occasion. It messed with his mind on more than one occasion. I'll give you one example in Matthew chapter 16. Peter's sitting there talking to Jesus and Jesus is teaching the disciples and Jesus is explaining why it's necessary for him to go to the cross, that he's about to go give up his life and die there and it's necessary for for salvation to occur. And, And Peter's listening to this, but then Peter, doing what he normally does, which is usually has a thought that that always jumps out of his mouth before it really registers what it is he's saying. He 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 interjects and says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. You see, the proud oppose God by trying to replace his purposes with our preferences. And so Peter was saying, look, I hear what you're saying. You're supposed to go to the cross, but, but that can't happen. Far be it from you, Lord. And so Peter tried to replace God's divine purpose with his personal preference, and that's pride. And we see this attitude playing out in our lives in a variety of ways. I mean, you just think about sharing the gospel with someone. If you're humble enough to share the gospel with someone, you're going to find their response to kind of fall in the category, well, that sounds good and all, but it's really unnecessary. And you'll sit there and you'll explain to them, look, Jesus 
God's purpose for salvation is that we be saved by grace through faith in Jesus, that he entered the world to live the life that you and I could not live. He died the death that you and I should have died. He rose from the grave conquering sin, conquering Satan, conquering death in order to give hope and life to everyone who's humble enough to come to him for it. You share that message with them and suddenly they look at him, well, that sounds good and all, but it's really unnecessary. I don't have to rely on someone else for salvation. I've got myself. And so they hear God's purpose, but then they assert their own preference. And as a result, there are a lot of people in the world, and perhaps there are a few in this room, who may be just too proud to be saved. I don't say that lightly. I say that actually because Jesus kind of says a similar thing in Matthew chapter 7. When he tells his disciples and everyone else who's listening, you've got to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You see, pride makes people too big to fit through the gate. You can't get through the narrow gate if you have an inflated ego, if you're unwilling to lay your personal preferences at the door and saying, okay, Christ, I'm coming to you because I am hopeless and helpless without you. That's salvation. That's the gospel. That is the kind of truth that registers and ascribes great glory to our great and glorious God. So we don't want to be too proud to be saved. That's why we love the gospel. But not only does it register in terms of salvation, but a lot of times for us as believers, it registers in terms of obedience. It registers in how we read the scriptures, doesn't it? You'll read the scriptures, you'll study the scriptures, you'll listen to preaching, you'll listen to teaching, and and you'll learn more about God's purposes for your life. You'll learn more about his purposes for marriage and his purposes for jobs and responsibility, his purposes for sexuality, his purposes for um, engaging the needs of the world. And, And you'll learn those kinds of truths and how the Christian life should be lived, dependently, absolutely, but purely just as well. And so you'll learn these, but then suddenly find yourself as a believer wanting to insert your personal preference for how you should live your life rather than conforming your life to the purposes God has laid out in his word. And so the posture of pride is the kind of posture that kind of takes the Bible and and just kind of lays it down and stands over it. This is a proud posture. This is the kind of pride that God opposes, saying, okay, Lord, I'm I'm just going to... Difficult doctrines I'm going to shrink back from. High standards of morality, I'm I'm not going to rely on you to help me do it. I'm just going to avoid them altogether and... So I'm just going to put myself above the word. That's a proud posture. That's the kind of pride that God opposes. Humility begins by when you and I become the kinds of people who start honoring God as God and we're no longer hovering above the word. Instead, like you're going to study in a couple of weeks, we're going to be the kinds of people who put ourselves beneath the word and allow God to communicate his purposes. And when our preferences don't line up with his purposes, we change and we conform. That's humility. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We'll move a little faster for the few next few. Next, humility unites God's people. Not only does humility begin by honoring God as God, humility also unites God's people. You see, in the Christian community, in our relationships with people, not only do we try to show ourselves above God, oftentimes we try to show ourselves above others as well. And as we do that, division occurs. This is why pride is the wedge that divides while humility is the glue that unites. 
You see, pride is like trying to put the two north ends of a magnet together. And the negative charges of the electrons just resist and reject and are opposed to each other. They're incompatible. And so what's needed in the equation is the positive charge of a proton. As you add the proton, it's able to cause some kind of magnetic attraction. Well, it is the positive charge of humility that causes and creates a magnetic attraction amongst God's people. And Paul wants God's people to be united. This is why he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Put humility on like a garment. This kind of puts humility in the area of spiritual disciplines. We have to humble ourselves towards one another. Clothe ourselves And the most immediate application of that verse in this passage is to assume a teachable posture. Humble yourselves towards one another. Be subject to the elders. Assume a teachable posture because that's humility. Humility recognizes, man, I have a lot to learn and there are a lot of people around me who can teach me a lot of good stuff. And so I'm walking into a room and I'm not sizing people up trying to compare myself with them and contrast myself with them. Instead, I'm walking into a room wondering, okay, what kind of, what, what kind of experiences have this person had? What, what kind of knowledge does this, does this person have? What kind of skill set does this person have that I can learn from? Because humility, we humble ourselves towards one another when we assume a teachable posture. Are you teachable? Or do you enter social circles or wondering more about what you can give than what you can get? Do you enter a new community looking to learn from those of the people who belong to that community? Humility unites while pride divides. You see, pride is the, is the poison that breeds a culture of comparison and in competition amongst God's people. And when that happens, there's nothing good that can come from that. The only places uh, comparison and competition leads to is either pride or shame. Humility is never on the horizon. And so when you and I refuse to humble ourselves towards one another, when we refuse to embrace humility and pursue humility and be disciplined towards humbling ourselves in community with one another, We risk hearing the same thing said to us that Jesus says to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Because when Peter heard Jesus' words and tried to put his preference in, and Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Okay, it's time for you to get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. Your mind is not set on the things of God. Instead, it is set on the things of men. In other words, get your attitude right. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So we want the kind of humility that brings unity amongst God's people. Thirdly, humility measures greatness God's way. You see this reflected not only in the tenor of this passage, but you see this in the lives of disciples as well because there were a couple of brothers named James and John. C.J. Mahaney brings this out in his book on humility. And James and John were brothers, and like most brothers, there was a sibling rivalry. They competed against one another. They tried to show one, uh, themselves above one another. And one day, James and John are having a conversation as to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They actually have the audacity to talk about this while Jesus is right there in their midst. And and so they're talking about who's going to be in the greatest and the great, greatness is right there, but they're still having the conversation. And so Jesus turns and says, hey guys, what are you talking about? 
realizing how absurd and silly they are being, they, they kind of clam up. What do I say now? I mean, this is Jesus. So, so they don't tell Jesus what he's talking about, but he's Jesus, so he kind of already knew what they were talking about. So he goes on to sort of address their concerns anyways. But what's interesting is that when Jesus finds out that they're asking this question, he doesn't redirect them. He doesn't tell them to drop that conversation. Instead, he just simply redefines what true greatness really is. And he encourages James and John to pursue greatness, but to pursue greatness as it is measured by God. And so Jesus looks at them and he says these words in Matthew chapter, Mark chapter 9. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. We as Christians should pursue greatness with everything that we've got. With all of our spiritual, physical, mental Emotional energy. We should pursue greatness, but we must pursue the kind of greatness that God recognizes. And the kind of greatness that God recognizes isn't the kind of greatness oftentimes that, go, that goes noticed in our culture and in our world. Our culture and our society, they define greatness according to talents and skills and recognition and What's most noticeable? The people who are leading, the people who are most vocal, the people who are most talented. They'll ascribe the word great to those kinds of people, but that's not necessarily the kinds of people God ascribes greatness to. Because the kind of greatness that God recognizes is the kind of greatness that oftentimes goes unnoticed in our world. It's the person who sticks around after a fellowship time to clean up when nobody's watching. It's the person who's humble enough to write an encouraging note to someone that they've seen gifts and talents in and they want to encourage and love them and serve them. It's, it's the kind of person who's willing to give up their weekends and, in order to go and serve the homeless and the poor in New Orleans. It's the kind of people that do the kinds of things that don't really get all the attention or recognition. It's the kind of people who serves and sacrifices for the welfare of others. That's how God measures greatness. And when we see that humility is the posture that measures greatness God's way. Next, in verse 7, we see that humility, the reason why it's a good friend of ours is because it isolates anxiety. You see this in verse 7, where Peter writes, Casting all your anxieties on him, on God, because he cares for you. Humility isolates anxiety. This word anxiety has a root meaning, which means to divide and to be drawn in different directions. The imagery here is sort of like on Braveheart, where William Wallace is being stretched at the end of the movie by the horses just pulling him in four different directions. That's the imagery that anxiety brings up here. Anxiety pulls us apart. It stretches us spiritually thin. Our English word for worry comes from a Greek word, which means to strangle to choke. This is anxiety. Anxiety chokes life out of people. Anxiety hinders worship from taking place because we are so... Anxiety causes people to become preoccupied with circumstances so that God just sort of falls off of their radars. Anxiety is a terrible thing, but the thing about humility, the reason why it's such a good friend to us because humility isolates anxiety. It says to cast all of your anxieties, all of your cares, all of your worries. The humble person throws all of that God's way. And the humble person realizes, I can do that. I can cast my anxieties on, upon God because he cares for me. This is how we 
isolate anxiety is by realizing that God is a loving, caring, consistent, attentive father to his children. He's never unaware of what we're going through. He's never oblivious to your anxieties, to your stresses, to your worries. Instead, all of his attention, all of his affection is perfectly bent towards his children so that at any moment, in any day, under any circumstance, you can take your anxiety, your worry, your stress, and you can cast it God's way because he cares for you. But people who define humility badly may be tempted to say something like, well, I'm just a, you know, 22-year-old student living in New Orleans. I, I'm not all that, you know, important. I'm just one person, one life. God's a really big God. He's got a really big universe he has to control and rule and all that. So I'm sure he's got bigger things to worry about than my puny problems. And people who talk that way maybe at first come across pretty humble. Well, that's a pretty humble thing to say. That's such humility to to talk that way. But to be honest with you, that's false humility, which is pride and arrogance. A humble person realizes that God is big enough and loving enough to take care of our anxieties. A humble person doesn't say God's too big for somebody like me. No, the humble person realizes that God is so good, he cares about someone like me. That's humility. That's humility. The reason why Peter comes down on anxiety so hard in this passage and the reason why Paul comes down so hard on it in the book of Philippians, the reason why Jesus comes down on anxiety in the book of Matthew so hard is because anxiety is the kind of condition, the kind of mindset that strikes and challenges the integrity of God's love. And so we want to be the kinds of people who realize that God's not lying when he says he loves us. Be the kinds of people who realize God's not lying when he says he's going to take care of us. That's what humble people do. That, that's a trait of humility. Next in verse 8, we see that humility levels the devil. Humility levels the devil in verse 8. He goes right from talking about anxiety saying, okay, now be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Humility levels the devil. Now, there are two approaches to the devil and, oh, that many of us take. On one hand, some of us give the devil way too much credit in our lives. We wake up in the morning, we go to our car, we turn the ignition, it doesn't crank. And suddenly the devil's trying to keep us from getting to church or getting to school or getting to our job and... It could be that the devil had nothing to do with it. You just forgot to put gas in your car the night before. And so, so sometimes we give the devil far too much credit. But then on the other hand, we make the mistake of not giving him any credit and not, and not realizing that he is a devil. He's a, a roaring lion that prowls around looking for people to devour. And so we just ignore him altogether. Therefore, we're not sober-minded. We're not being watchful. We're not being aware of when the enemy is at work, when the enemy is attacking our lives. And we need to be the kinds of people who are sober-minded, who are watchful, who realizes that the absolute appetite that the lion, this roaring lion has. He, he has an appetite for our pride. He gnaws on the bones of our pride. That's what he chews on. There is a symbiotic relationship between our pride and the devil. And so when pride is at work within us, more times than not, the devil's right there next to us just gnawing on it, inflaming it, inciting it. And so the question then becomes, well, how do we resist the devil? Well, some people 
who give the devil too much credit, or really give themselves too much credit, try to confront the devil directly. And then we resist the devil by, by going after him and by speaking to the devil, like Martin Luther, who as he was translating the New Testament, he took his inkwill and he would throw it at the wall. And when asked why, he would say, well, I'm, I'm, throwing, I'm, I'm trying to get rid of the devil. I'm trying to scare him away. That's, that may be the wrong approach to resisting the devil. I like Timothy Keller's approach, pastor in New York City, because he compares our pride and the relationship between our pride and the devil to that of a piano, the strings of a piano. He says, our lives, are, our pride is like the strings of a piano. The devil, however, is the piano player. And so he comes and he just plays on our pride. He, he tickles our pride. And so the way we resist the devil normally, ordinarily, isn't by trying to cook, kick the stool out from under him or isn't trying to you know, push him away from the piano. The way you and I resist the devil is by asking God for the shears of grace so that we can cut the strings of the piano keys. We resist the devil by confronting our pride. Jesus is going to take care of the devil. He's actually already kind of defeated him through his life, death, and resurrection. So we don't have to confront the devil and fight him and resist him that way. Instead, we confront the devil by confronting the sin within our own lives. We remove pride from us. We ask God for grace so that pride can be downsized in our lives so that when the devil shows up looking for a bone to gnaw on, he goes hungry. So we resist the devil. We level the devil by waging war against the sin within. Then we move on in verse 9. It says that humility, we see, ignore self-pity. Right after he starts talking about the devil in verse 9, he goes on to say, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Humility ignores self-pity because one of the strategies of the devil and the enemy is to try to convince suffering, hurting, anxious, worried, stressed out, upset people. He wants to try to convince those kinds of people that they are by themselves in this world. That whatever experiences they are going through, it's utterly unique to them. Therefore, they start to see themselves as all alone in the world and they start isolating themselves from the normal way God brings comfort to our lives, which is the community of faith. And so the devil tries to get us to isolate ourselves from Christian community, but it is through Christian community is how God normally comforts and encourages and supports our lives. So it's kind of, it's kind of prideful to think, well... Nobody is going to understand what I'm going through, so I can't talk about it with anyone at church, or I can't talk about, any, about it with any of my Christian friends. And so we kind of forget what the metaphysical poet John Donne said when he said, no man is an island. We kind of forget that because the enemy is trying to convince us that we are islands, that we are on our own, that we are by ourselves. And so self-pity then becomes a normal trait. But self-pity is a dangerous and utterly undesirable way to live. Pride leads people to wallow in self-pity. Humility, however, encourages us to ignore it. I remember in college, there was a huge storm one day right after we played flag football, Boston, and there was a huge flag football game. A lot of people were out there, and then the rain came down immediately afterwards, and, and I walked outside, and I was 
sitting there on the sidelines with my friends, and I looked over at them and said, guys, I'm going for it. And they said, what do you mean? I said, I'm, I'm about to do a Pete Rose dive right there in that mud pile, and it's going to be awesome. So I said, so you guys just watch. I've played baseball all my life. I've played for this college, actually. I know how to slide. I'm going to make this look good. And so I said, get them all pumped up for it. Okay, I'm taking off. And so I take off sprinting down the field. And at some point in time, I had, a, I had a brain fart or something because when I got there, I didn't know if I wanted to, I had forgotten whether or not I was going to go head first or feet first. And so I just kind of confused myself and just kind of went both first. And when I did that, my, my cleats kind of stuck into a rut. And when that happened, my body went one way, my legs went to another, and I heard a loud pop. And, and I found myself just fell face down in this mud pit, just hurting, not only my ankle, but my pride. I know how to slide. And, and so I'm sitting there feeling like an idiot. And my buddies see it happen. They, they, he's not getting up. Better go to him. They run out there to him, to me and I say, Andy, are you okay? And I'm grabbing my ankle. I can't get up. I'm stunned. I say, hey, God, man, we got to get you to the hospital. That looks terrible. My ankle is swelling up. And what if I would have looked at my friends and said, wait a, wait a second, guys. Um, I'm the only one here with a bum ankle. All of you guys have good ankles, so you po- can't possibly know what I'm going through. So, so y'all just leave me alone. I, I don't want your help. And I just stayed there in in that mud pit, face down with a bum ankle. That would be utterly ridiculous. Because we don't need each other's help. Because, or let me say that a different way. We need each other's help. (laughs) And just because they have good ankles doesn't mean they don't have something that can help me. But self-pity wants to convince us otherwise, wants us to think that we are all by ourselves. And so we say, well, you, you don't know what I'm going through. You can't help me. That's pride. Humility says, I need the help of the Christian community. I need to start seeing myself rightly, clarifying my perspective and realizing I'm not alone in this thing. That God did not create me. God did not save me to be a lone shark Christian. He did not create me or save me to to journey through this life on my own. No, he, he created me, he saved me, and then he made me part of a community. A group of people whom I can learn from, a group of people whom I can invest in, a group of people who can actually help me when I'm struggling. The believers Peter's writing to desperately needed to hear this message because they're being persecuted, they're being pressed down, they're, being, um, they're suffering in a variety of ways, and so the enemy's coming along trying to convince them that they're by themselves, and Peter writes this to say, look, no, you're not. The same sufferings you're experiencing today is happening to believers all over the world, but you guys are in this thing together. But then he goes on to the next to remind them, perhaps one of my favorite truths in this whole passage is that as humility, or humility is the kind of posture that trusts in God's sovereignty. Humility trusts God's sovereignty. He says, yes, you're suffering. And then in verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Humility trusts God's sovereignty. And this is a crucial aspect of this passage. It's a huge dynamic of this entire letter. I I don't have time to really give it justice, but Peter is reminding these readers that, yes, you're suffering, But that suffering, that pain, the source of your anxiety, your stress, and your worry, all of that will only last a little while because the God of all grace will one day restore, confirm, strengthen, establish you. His is the dominion forever. He's reminding them, look, you're struggling. You think your life is falling apart, spinning out of control. But I want to remind you that your God, your Savior, is sovereign. Humility trusts in His sovereignty. 
So our lives are never spinning out of control. And so when we suffer, when we're anxious, when we're worried, we, we don't pridefully turn away from God. We humbly turn towards God. I'll never forget the story of Stan Knapper, a guy I've told some of you about before. Stan Knapper was a guy in my church in Ruston, Louisiana, whose son was about my age. Well, when his son was a freshman in college, he was driving down a four-lane road when suddenly his cell phone went off or he reached for a CD or something. And when he did, he took the steering wheel with him and he crossed four lanes of traffic and hit a head-on collision and Stan's son died instantly. Well, my dad showed up at Stan Knapper's door to encourage him and to comfort him and to help him. And he walked into the house and as he did, he heard a piano playing because Stan was a classical pianist, a, a professor at Louisiana Tech University, a brilliant guy. And, and so he hears the music play, and he just kind of follows the music to a back room, and then he hears singing, and he doesn't really know what to do. He gets to the door, he kind of knocks on it gently, and then he pushes it open, and as he walks in, he sees Stan Knapper sitting at his piano with tears coming down his, tears just falling down his face, singing, God is still sovereign, God is still sovereign, God is still sovereign. That was a very humble thing to do. Trusting God's sovereignty does not mean that you do not hurt. Trusting God's sovereignty does not mean that your eyes do not well up with tears. No, trusting in God's sovereignty with humility means you weep your eyes out. You you pour your heart out to God, but humility says, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm struggling, but I'm not going to turn away from God because I trust that he's sovereign. I trust that he's wise. I trust that he's capable of working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I trust that about God. So rather than turning away from him, I'm turning towards him. That's humility. And that's what Peter's trying to, the posture he's trying to ingrain in the lives of these believers. And then he goes on and he says that remember that your God is sovereign and this one who has called you to his eternal glory This little phrase, I love it. He says, this internal glory in Christ. Lastly, humility. The reason why it's our greatest friend is because humility yearns for Jesus Christ. The sovereignty of God is centered on people finding themselves in Christ. And those who are in Christ, yes, they will experience suffering in this world, but that suffering will only last for a little while because in light of eternity, everything in this life is is just a moment. It is a flash in the pan. It is like Ashley Simpson's music career. It just doesn't last very long. It's not very substantial. And so humility is the kind of people who yearns for Christ the kinds of people who realize that Jesus is the source of our salvation. Jesus is the source of our security. Jesus is the source of our eternal destiny. Therefore, in every circumstance, in every community, in every moment of every day, we are the kinds of people who yearn for Christ because we know He is our destiny. That this sovereign God is one day going to restore, confirm, establish, and strengthen us in Christ. That's something worth yearning for. That's something worth burning for. That's something worth learning for. That is something that we desire. And actually, this is the secret to accessing humility in our own lives. 
Humility isn't the kind of thing that we develop by pursuing it directly. No, humility is the kind of thing that increases as a byproduct of a greater pursuit. Humility comes as you and I become the kind of people who learn to yearn for Christ. For when we are focusing on Christ, pride can't help but flee. When we are focusing on Christ, humility can't help but grow. So humility learns to yearn for Christ. It's sort of like the sun. When you wake up in the morning, you're going to walk outside and you're going to benefit from the sun. You're not going to benefit from the sun because you kick your head back and you look at it directly. If you do that, that could be counterproductive. It won't be very good. You're going to benefit from the sun by looking at everything that the sun shows you. Well, we, as human beings, followers of Christ... We benefit from humility when we see everything that humility shows us. And humility shows us Christ. That's why humility yearns for Christ. If you bow your heads, I'm going to say a prayer for us and then Eric's going to take over. And As we do so, I want to encourage you just to take these statements and perhaps conduct your own attitude check time throughout this week, tonight, or in your small group, or whatever the case may be, that you would just think through and pray through and willingly give yourself to the painful procedure of conducting an attitude check, saying, okay, Lord, where does my life line up with pride? Where does my life line up with humility? And would you help me, Father, become the kind of person who sees and recognizes and embraces and enjoys and benefits from humility, who is our greatest, or which is our greatest friend. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we pray right now that you would give us grace to grow in humility. Father, I pray that you would fix the attention of our minds, the affection of our hearts, the focus of our faith on your son, Jesus, that you would help us yearn for him, seek him, strive for him, Lord, knowing good and well that humility will become as a byproduct of that pursuit. God, help us now. Help us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Debtor to mercy alone Of covenant mercy I sing I come with your righteousness on My humble offering to bring The judgments of your holy law With me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. work which your goodness began the arm of your strength will complete 
Your promise is yes and amen And never was forfeited yet The future or things that are now No power below or above Can make you your purpose forego Or sever my soul from Your love Sing that again, the work The work which your goodness began The arm of your strength will complete Your promise is yes and amen It never was forfeited yet Never will be The future are things that are now No power below or above Can make you your purpose for go Or sever my soul 